Welcome to this month's special programming series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM157. Studies have shown that often the first and even second and third antidepressants do not adequately treat depression in our patients. What strategies can we use to treat the difficult-to-treat patients? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host. And with me today is Dr. Ron Pies. Dr. Pies is Professor of Psychiatry and Lecturer on Bioethics and Humanities at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. He is also Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Tufts School of Medicine in Boston and Editor-in-Chief of the Psychiatric Times. He is the author of several books, ranging from psychopharmacology to poetry to philosophy. Welcome to ReachMD. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And Ron, you've seen some of the most refractory depressed patients in your practice. What can you tell us about what you've learned? From my own experience as a consultant, Leslie, I think there are three main lessons that I've learned about so-called refractory depressed patients. The first is that many of them have not been correctly diagnosed and may in fact be bipolar disordered patients. The second is that in many cases of so-called failed antidepressant treatment, there has been really inadequate antidepressant dose for uh, an inadequate length of time. And the third lesson, I guess, is that even under the best of circumstances with good diagnosis and treatment, depression is very stubborn and hard to treat. And the recent STAR-D studies have really shown that Sometimes you have to jump through three or four pharmacological hoops, as it were, before you start seeing uh, people remitting. Out of those three, what do you think is the most common thing that you see from other clinicians referring to you? Well, just speaking from my own consulting experience, misdiagnosis was really the most common problem, with most of the patients turning out to have a bipolar spectrum disorder. And I might add that most of these patients had been referred by other psychiatrists yeah. and good psychiatrists at that. So it's not just the uh, PCPs who sometimes, you know, take the rap on this who are missing the boat. I think that there is a lot of undiagnosed bipolar spectrum out there. These patients often have bad reactions to antidepressants. Even if they don't actually switch into mania or hypomania, they complain of feeling really wired or antsy or agitated. I saw a great deal of that in my consulting work. One of the things that I found to be most helpful is actually an instrument that you designed called the Bipolar Spectrum Disorder Scale. Tell us a little bit about that and and where people who are interested might get their hands on it. Well, the DSDS was a scale that I developed as a result of my frustration trying to pick up bipolar spectrum patients. But I will say that my colleague, Dr. Nasir Ghami, was very, very instrumental in helping refine this for clinical purposes. So his group deserves a lot of credit. And it's essentially a story, kind of tells a little story that the patient either agrees, sounds like him or her, or doesn't agree. Go online and Google Bipolar Spectrum Diagnostic Scale, or BSDS, and put my name after it. You'll probably pull up about 20 or 30 websites that actually have the scale available. 
Is it okay for us to copy? We don't have to send you a check? No, no, no. <laughs> absolutely. Anybody can use it and not under any kind of restriction. Well, like I say, I found it tremendously helpful. And the only other thing sort of similar that I've encountered out there is the mood disorder questionnaire, the MDQ, which I frankly find horrible. I don't know what your experience is with that one. Well, the MDQ, you know, basically takes DSM criteria for mania and hypomania and asks some questions about it. I think it has some utility, but we have found that the BSDS is a little more sensitive in picking up the softer side of the bipolar spectrum. So, of course, you know, it's our baby and we're a little bit uh, biased in favor of it, but uh, we think it works a little bit better for type 2 and other sort of softer side of the bipolar spectrum. Yeah, well, I completely agree. And my biggest complaint about the mood disorders questionnaire, the MDQ, is the incredible false positive rate that I see in my practice that people with ADD or, you know, all sorts of other things, obsessive compulsive disorders, often mark yes when it's not mania, it's uh, ADD. Right, right. And our scale isn't perfect either. We find that people who lack insight into their own disorder who really don't believe they have bipolar, let's say, for example, that uh, they may not complete the questionnaire accurately. So, you know, we actually recommend using the two scales, the MDQ and the BSDS together, and you can give the patient the BSDS and have them fill it out while they're in the waiting room. So you, know, you can save a lot of time that way. Yeah. And they don't seem to complain so much about the BSDS. I think the story approach that you use is really very patient-friendly. Well, that's good to hear. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ron Pies. We are discussing treatment refractory depression. Now, Ron, if you would, why don't you walk us through how you evaluate someone that you're asked to consult on who's maybe failed multiple antidepressant trials before getting to you? You know, good treatment begins with accurate diagnosis, Leslie. So the first step is, as I've implied already, go back and see whether the correct diagnosis has been made or missed. So bipolar disorder, psychotic disorder, covert medical illness like hypothyroidism, degenerative brain disease like Huntington's or Parkinson's, comorbid substance abuse, all of those things really need to be reassessed and ruled out. Next, you really want to take a very careful look at the adequacy of the patient's trials, the dose and the duration. And a lot of patients, you know, are taking medication for a week. They're not getting better, so the doctor's taking them off it. That's not really an adequate trial, or the dose is just too low. If the patient has not been on their antidepressant for four weeks or at least three or four weeks, you really don't have an adequate trial. Those are the first things that I think you need to do. In talking about the adequacy of trials, this is something I personally find very frustrating in evaluating new patients because often they don't remember. You know, you're lucky if you remember the name of the medicine, more or less, how much they were on and how long they were on it. How do you deal with that? It's hard. I mean, ideally, you want to get all the old records you can get your hands on from previous uh, hospitalizations, from their previous outpatient treaters, but it is hard. You know, I think that in ideal cases, uh, if you can get a hold of pharmacy records or anything that will actually help pin that down, I think that's important. Otherwise, you've essentially ruled out medications that might 
in fact, have benefited the patient. They had just stayed on them a little bit longer. I agree. One of the ways we deal with it, although it's far from perfect as well, is we have patients complete a pretty thorough history in advance of their appointment so that you know they can try to do some of this legwork of tracking down when and what dose of medicines they were on. In my practice, I used to have patients complete those kinds of questionnaires as well. I think it saves a lot of time. Okay. You used to, but you stopped? No, it's just that uh, I'm no longer doing my primary consulting practice right now. Oh, okay. I just switched activities. I thought maybe you found a better way. <laughs> <laughs> no. So a thorough diagnostic evaluation, adequacy of trials that they've been on in the past, anything else you think about when you're doing this initial evaluation of a treatment-resistant patient? There are patients who may be outliers in terms of poor metabolism or uh, very rapid metabolism of their medications. They may be genetically, for example, slow metabolizers in one of the cytochrome systems or rapid metabolizers so that they have uh, very low blood levels. So one thing to do, if you can, is to see whether anyone ever obtained a blood level of any of the medications they were on. Even though we don't have good therapeutic ranges for the newer non-tricyclic medications, sometimes if you check these levels, they come back way below the reference range for the lab. That tells you that something is going on. Either the patient is not taking the medication or they're uh, very rapid metabolizers of the medication. When you've done all that work, do you have your favorite medication combination, sort of your go-to medicine? There are two answers on that, Leslie. If I had to say what are the medications that have the best control, best supported studies as uh, augmenters for refractory depression, I would say the answers are lithium and thyroid hormone, adding one or the other of those to existing medication. And I have had some good experience with those combinations. On the other hand, in terms of ease of use, I often found that a combination of an SSRI and bupropion, Wellbutrin, was quite helpful in converting uh, partial responders to uh, full responders. Now, what place might ECT have? ECT is really an underutilized treatment because of some unwarranted fears and a lot of bad press that it's gotten over the years. It really is by far the most effective treatment that we have for severe, and especially for psychotic uh, major depression. For cases in which the patient has stopped eating or taking liquids or is at a very high risk of suicide, I really think it is the treatment of choice. Now, tell us about the future. What can we see in the next 10 years for the treatment of depression? Well, we're learning more and more about the neurotropic effects of antidepressants. So we're not talking so much about uh, boosting neurotransmitters as we are about the ability of these agents to increase nerve growth factors such as BDNF, which is a brain-derived neurotropic factor. I think eventually we're going to find more direct ways of switching on these genes that make these neurotropic factors and maybe with agents that have fewer side effects than our current treatments have. Are these medications? Are there other ways to increase the neurogenesis? There probably are. I don't think we've found them. What we have found in animal models is that the agents that we're now using do, in fact, increase these uh, neurotropic factors so that, you know, we're not talking about cosmetic psychopharmacology, to use a term that uh, Peter Kramer made famous. We're really talking about very fundamental alterations at the level of the gene. Well, that's pretty exciting. It is, and I think eventually we'll find ways of turning on those genes that 
are more direct and maybe avoid some of the side effects of the agents that we're using now. Now, one thing we didn't talk about in terms of treating the difficult-to-treat depressed patient is the role of psychotherapy. Yes, and I absolutely think that psychotherapy is an important piece of the work. The best documented studies are those probably that involve CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Unfortunately, it's hard to find people who really know how to do that. Mm -hmm. Still, I think that even in the primary care setting, you can adapt CBT in ways that most physicians can pick up and utilize. And I, I do think it's an important piece of the overall treatment picture. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Ron. You're very welcome. We've been discussing strategies for difficult-to-treat depressed patients with our guest today, Dr. Ron Pies. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening to this month's special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals.